Um, so I have a general kind of sense of where you folks have been at on your journey, even though you're all perhaps in different places of your journey. But one of the things that's going on these days is there's a real assault on the Bible from different angles. I would say one of those assaults has been from fundamentalist literalism. I consider that an assault on the Bible and it needs correction. But the reverse is true too. There's uh, some folks who've been so beaten up by the Bible that they just have given up on it altogether, right? And uh, so I've been in churches where like, they're like, oh no, we don't have Bibles in our church. I'm like, well, how about bring them from home? And they're like, oh, we don't, no, we don't have a Bible in our home anymore. Like it's, it was so toxic to them, probably because of the literalism. And so now they're in reaction. And then I even read my, you know, my atheist friends. They just, they assault the Bible all the time because they read it. And they're like finding the hard stuff and then taking it literally and, and saying, you Christians are stupid if you believe this. I'm like, you're exactly right. We would be stupid if we, if we ignored how you're meant to interpret the Bible. You don't, you don't sit down with Shakespeare and say anybody can read this, it's really easy, and just take it literally. That's not how, you know, why would we do that with, with something as genius as the Bible? So I want to talk a bit about the Bible tonight because I've not given up on it. I find it very precious, and I do find it to be like just this work of incredible genius that is inspired beyond what what um, someone could have made up on an island or something. <laughs> and uh, And yet, it's also problematic. Um, <clears throat> not that the Bible, well, yeah, the Bible can be problematic if, if we don't think about what it's for and how it was formed and how the apostles interpreted it and so on. So some of this will be like a little bit of a seminary lecture. I'm going to try and make it not so much preacher. like that. <laughs> Shut up, preacher! <laughs> Yeah. Did I, so last time I was here, I, like, I can't remember all what I talked about. Did I talk about when I was a little boy at all? And uh, when I was a little kid, I grew up in a Baptist church, and one of the things, the gifts they gave me was a love for the Bible and a love for memorizing the Bible. And, uh, and I think I loved it because I encountered Jesus there. Well, if we could get back to that, that'd be cool. Um, and, and yet, uh, we called it things that we probably shouldn't have called it, like the Word of God. Um, it's kind of that, but like actually Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God, according to the Bible. So um, this is the great thing about the Bible, is it, it, it will correct a lot of our wrong beliefs about the Bible. So one of the wrong beliefs about the Bible is, is that it could actually be like, well, it's, okay, Jesus is the living word and this is the written word, like a fourth member of the Trinity, except that we weren't charismatic, so it was just the third member, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And, and, um, and the Holy Spirit was a troublemaker. And so we don't want to talk about that. In heaven, he's known as God, but you know, careful, don't let him in your church. Or her, as the case may be. So, so, um, so that was one issue. The Word of God issue. It, it, it was kind of like it became a it, it became worship, uh, something we worshipped, and we would say that it wasn't. You know, of course, God didn't dictate it, but we would act like He did. Do you remember when Mork for Mork came down in Boulder, Colorado, in an egg? We acted like that, that the Bible had showed up one day and hatched from an egg. And, and while we might say people wrote it, it was like they were possessed while they wrote it so that they couldn't make any mistakes, which requires you not to read it. Um, so, so, but we did read it, and somehow we could put the blinders on and just say, this, this book never contradicts itself. It's like, have you read it? Right down to the most basic things, like, you heard it said in this passage, what Jesus says, but I'm telling you this. And he says the opposite. And he corrects the Bible. So when Jesus corrects the Bible, what do you do? We're like, oh, he can't be correcting the Bible because the Bible never makes 
it never says anything that needs correction. So that, this was troublesome, but we would just put it aside. The prob, it's not a problem. We'll just, and so we would develop uh, a doctrine of Scripture that, that put it on the same level, that put every chapter of the Bible on the same level with Jesus. And the Bible doesn't say that. Not only that, but then we began to add it to all our doctrinal statements in Protestant Christianity. And the doctrinal statements would say this. We believe that the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice. And sometimes it was more like the Bible is the only authority for faith and practice. But the thing is, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is, Jesus said, I'm going to send you the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. So this is, this is good. We've got a Bible, but also it's the spirit that leads us into all truth. And, and oddly, uh, really amazing, toxic, crazy cults use a Bible too. So, so just having the Bible doesn't make you safe. You're going to need the spirit of truth. And then also it says something radical some of you might not approve of. It doesn't say that the Bible is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It doesn't even say Jesus is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Does anyone know the Bible verse that tells you what the pillar and foundation of the truth is? The church. What? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth? It's what the Bible says. Well, let's not be spooky about that. Let's say, let's say that as we're walking this faith journey, we have some guides. And the guides are not independent of each other. The guides work together. One of those guides is the scriptures. Another of those guides is the people of God, the church. And another of those guides is the Holy Spirit. And they are, we, so we use this word, interdependent witnesses. And if you go with only one of those, you'll probably go off track. The Bible only, but reject the Holy Spirit, you're in trouble. The Holy Spirit, you reject the Bible, you're, you're in trouble. But now, like, this is a temptation. Not only am I leaving the Bible behind, but I'm leaving community behind. Bad idea. Sorry. But I get it. Some people need a lot of detox. So I don't want to condemn those who aren't part of a fellowship, but here we are fellowshipping tonight. This counts. This counts, okay? So... So these were some of the problematic things, right? The Bible is the word of God, and, then, and, and that the Bible was the only reference point for what truth is, and then also we began to get defensive. And that's when we started making up words, like inerrant. That's a very modernistic word that came out of defensiveness to those who were challenging things in the Bible and instead of going into the Bible and working with those hard things, we just made a blocker, like a, a blocker called inerrancy. It's like, and, and the, what we would say is that the Bible is completely true. We called it the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. That meant every word is true in all that it affirms. Well, that sounds good. It's just not what the Bible says. This is the thing, it's like, read the damn book. <laughs> and it will mess, it will mess with your theology of the book. It will stop you from becoming worshipers of the book, and it will remind you that the scriptures are doing something. And what they're doing is always pointing back to Jesus. And where you can't see how that works, then let it go. Don't make it be something it isn't. And so there's this... Um, my friend Brian's on, he will talk about like when we started developing these things like in, um, inerrancy, infallibility, and so on, we were putting a burden on the Bible that it could not bear. We were asking it to do something it wasn't claiming to do. And what it was, but what does it claim to do? And so we'll go there in a bit. But before we go there, let's talk about how it came to be. I love stories of how things came to be. And um, so instead of thinking about it as sort of like a mork from orc gift from heaven directly, and even like not just 
apostles sitting in a seminary somewhere in their office getting revelation and writing it all down. Um, that's really not how it worked. Let's, let's think about, I'm going to compare how it actually worked with your own lives. Um, the, many of you encountered God before you ever opened a Bible. Anybody here like that? Okay. So, did, did Abraham come to know God by reading a Bible? No. He had an encounter with the living God. Did Moses come to know God by reading a Bible? No. He had an encounter with the living God. How about Jesus? He was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, so probably before he got to a Bible. Even Paul, Paul had a Bible, but that actually was a veil over his eyes. His, the way he read the Bible actually made him think faithfulness was killing Christians. And it was only an encounter with the living Christ that shifted things. So I think let's start there. Way before you get to Bible, you have people encountering the living God. And like, what if that's still happening? What if, in fact, the Bible's telling us that's how it works? The Bible's not just a testimony of what God did, like a history of what God did. It's a testimony of what he does. Oh, God comes to people who don't know him, and he reveals himself to them. And they wake up, and they're like, God's alive, God is real. I meet lots of people like that. It's harder to think like that if you grew up in a church. But since we did, a lot of us, how many of you grew up going to church? All right, so who did you, what did you encounter first? Other believers or the Bible? Other believers. So, so you've got encounters with God. Then you've got this development of a community of people who've encountered God. And these communities talk about that. They talk about their encounters. They tell their children that God is real. And here's how we know he was real. Because he did this. And the children are like, wow. And you develop these incredible oral traditions about these encounters with God well before anyone writes it down. I think that's marvelous. Now, there's a, this is a problem, though, with the Mork for Mork version of the Bible. Is like we actually thought the Bible started with someone writing it down. Oh, no. Some of these stories were passed on for hundreds of years, thousands of years, who knows, maybe 10,000s of years. But in, our, in the inerrancy model, if the, if the word of God starts with what we used to call the original autographs, that meant first edition Bible. That's where it started. Oh, no. Then if you thought that, then you would think an oral tradition waters down the truth. You know, if I did that thing where I whisper to you something and you whisper and you whisper and it goes around and goes around. And then by the time you get to the end, it's like I said, you know, I love my wife. And then somebody over here is saying I like to ride horses or something, you know. But that's our, that's our impression then of how oral tradition works is that it gets watered down and distorted. Guess what? It's the opposite. Oral tradition is such an important part of how the Bible is formed because over centuries and centuries, the stories that are passed down are perfected. And they're tightened. And they're made like really precise. And so let's say a story like Cain and Abel becomes like a couple paragraphs that represents maybe hundreds of generations passing on that story until it's perfect. And until it's beautiful, until it's so insightful that you got psychologists to, today saying, we've never read anything like this. And it can make their hair stand on end. Wow, how did that happen? Well, it included this amazing oral tradition before it ever got to writing. 
And so we've got, let's review, we'll keep reviewing as we go. So you've got people encountering the living God, reflecting on those encounters, passing them on to their children who develop growing communities of faith, one of which we end up calling Judaism. They're like, in, they're in slavery for 400 years without a single worship service. It was seven, day a work, seven days a week, hard labor. They didn't have a Bible. Where did they, where did they get the idea of Genesis? And Adam and Eve. And a seven-day creation. I don't even know who that was revealed to. I just know it wasn't written down until, not probably not even after the 400 years in slavery, but maybe not even until the Babylonian captivity. But it's being passed, some, somehow God has revealed these things to a people who've encountered him and they're passing it down and, and, and it's being distilled into the essential oils. Right? Uh, and and it because there's an aroma to it that's just genius if you read it right. And um, so I, I, I just think this is magnificent. But to then worry about who wrote it and when it was written, it's like, who cares? That's like so. Well, it's maybe fun for some people to talk about. I like talking about it. But like, I don't like talking about math, but there's people here who like talking about math. I'm like, well, then talk about math. But like, maybe math matters more when you're doing your taxes than who wrote Exodus, right? So, so you're developing this sacred scripture. And one of the most amazing things about it is that it does develop. And so not only do you have an oral tradition, but that at some point you have scribes who say, you know what, we better write it down. And so they do. But that doesn't happen all at once. Like, let's say the prophecies of Isaiah, those prophecies occur in a community that follows Isaiah that are prophetically speaking to kings and the nations over the course of over a hundred years. Was Isaiah over a hundred years old? Oh no, but he had a school of the prophets and they were developing and accumulating a collection of great prophecies. And then they, and then they, fill, they finalize it at some point, probably long after he's dead. And, um, and as they're doing this, there's editions. One of the really easy places to see how you have multiple editions of the Bible is the book of Psalms. Because you've got some Psalms that are written quite early. Some claim to even be written by Moses. And some are like David, what's well, 400 years later? And then you've got some um, like after David's dead and you're like, oh, it's a hymn book and it's a growing hymn book. That's cool. And then you've got other, you've got prophets that would prophesy against Assyria. And then the next prophet from, a, like, let's say in northern Israel, they're prophesying against the, the uh, Assyrian Empire. And like 200 years later, a prophet from the south is prophesying against Babylon, but he's borrowing stuff from that other prophecy. And he's saying, oh, this isn't just about then, this is about now too. And, and so, there, so you're getting, there's editing. And I'm just like, sometimes the editors are more genius than the authors. They're like, you can't edit the Bible? Of course you can. Well, I don't. But I mean, in the Bible, they're developing this, this library of sacred texts, which, by the way, there's never been agreement on which books should be in the Bible. Well, the, the Jews fought about that with each other. They, they didn't all come to an agreement about what would, should be in the Old Testament and what shouldn't be. And then the Christians too. The Christians, uh, Christians have different, new, different Bibles. Uh, right now, today. My Orthodox Bible is a lot bigger than your Protestant Bible because like the Protestants, in the name of Scripture alone, cut out a whole bunch of books in the 1500s. Why would you do that? Don't do that. But we did, you know, 
I grew up in a church with 66 books in the Bible. And um, I'm thinking 1500 AD is a little late to be taking books out. Might want to see what's in a Catholic Bible. But even there, it's not the same as the Ethiopian church. They have a different... Like, what's the deal with that? It's like, well, maybe, maybe that's not the big important thing. Maybe we don't have to panic if some churches have different books. Maybe the point is something else. How well these points point, these books point to the word of God, Jesus Christ, right? So a lot of this, I want to, I'm just saying, I'm just saying there's things we used to panic about that aren't a panic. In fact, they're, they're genius. The development of oral tradition, the, the writing of books of, by different people over time, the, the edits to those books that actually make it more beautiful, and that that's inspired too. That's not to be panicked about. We can rejoice in this amazing gift from God. What else shall we say about that? Genres. You know what genre is, right? I'll tell you if you don't. So, like, in, in music, you have different genres. Rock and roll is a genre. Um, country and western. Classical. What, Matt, what did they even call your genre? What are, what, what are you? Okay, yeah, yeah. CCM, right? And so you had all these genres of, of music. That's a genre, difference. But also you have genres of writing, don't you? So I write in many genres. I write children's books. I write theology books. I've written some more inspirational books. I've written, I've written um, political science textbooks for university. These are different genres. And normally we know that you don't read all genres the same. Are there any poets in the room? Any poets? Well, Matt. What if I just took all of Matt's songs and I read every line literally? That would be like silly and not even beautiful. Um, if I read them all literally, like, yeah, they do. But they're less beautiful if I don't read them as songs. If I read them as math textbooks, that would be stupid, right? And so it's really important, really important to correctly interpret genres according to how they're presented. So when it's a, when it's a poem, read it as a poem. I used to, this is a toughie for me because like I memorized in, in 1991, I memorized Psalm 91 and I pray it all the time and it's loaded with these amazing promises. But if, you, but if you forget that it's a poem and you turn it into promises to be read literally, you will become resentful of God because Psalm 91 virtually promises that you won't experience tragedy. You won't even stub your toe. And when you have a promise that says you won't even stub your toe and then one of your best friend's daughters hangs herself, well, then where was God then? This poem is lying. That's how it, it would, if you took it by itself, literally. But what if you pray the Psalms and you pray, some, you pray them as poetic, with poetic license, some of the Psalms are saying like, God, you abandoned me. Did he Really? We made whole theologies of that. No, it's an expression of a human heart crying out to God, like feeling abandoned. And when you cry that out, then God can respond. You don't make a theology of God abandoning you. That's crazy, but we did it. And then you've got other ones, like we call them imprecatory psalms. Those are like hateful. Um, praising God because he's going to wipe out your enemies. In fact, God, why don't you dash their baby's heads against the stone? It says that. Why would it say that? That's inerrant? Well, it's a poem about a, that that is a real cry of a human despair 
in the midst of overwhelming oppression by terrible people. And it's a prayer some Christians are praying tonight. But you know, like, do you think God takes that literally? So, oh yes, I love my children, so I will probably need to bash some babies' heads. No, no, it's like you're, you're in torment and you're angry and you let it out. And then God's like, I hear you. Love your enemies. Oh, and it's, so it helps you process, right? But then even Psalm 91, then I get all triumphalistic, like, because I had a good day. You know, I got, I got to see the Popoviches. God is great. God is awesome. Life is awesome. All of life is really awesome, and God is only good. Yeah, lucky them. So what's this mean, though? Like, is it always like that? What happens when you go through a painful divorce? What happened to Psalm 91? But guess what? I don't have to throw out Psalm 91. It's a cry of the human heart rejoicing because something good is happening in our lives. So this is a genre. You must read poetry as poetry, and the, but not just poetry, but as prayers of the human heart for every, for every experience. And then they help you. There's other genres that are, um, that are harder. So we, we got this idea. In, this is modernism. Modernism's, modernism really did a number on us. It's like everything needs to be proven in a court or a lab. And we started reading the Bible like that. So for example, we there's a genre called myth. And we think myth means not true. And that's not what myth means at all. Myth carries more truth in it than most other genres. But you have to learn how to read symbolically. The function of myth, for example, is this. To tell you how things came to be. And to do it with powerful symbols that you will remember and you'll feel and you'll see so that the truth can get in your heart. But we went, oh, myth means not true. What a disaster that was. So for example, <laughs> we're like, okay, we're going to read, we're going to read Genesis 1. And God created the heavens and the earth in six days. This is a myth about how creation came to be. And it's amazing and wonderful and also efficient. We're talking one chapter. And, but if you're like, well, if it's myth, it can't be true. It's like, of course it's true. But you don't read myth with crass wooden literalism or you end up thinking the world's 6,000 years old. When in fact, we know exactly, like it, we don't know exactly, but we, we know like, certain layers out there that you can see in the hills around here. We know how long it takes one of those layers to form. Or are we going to pretend science is our enemy now and go like build an ark somewhere? <laughs> and completely miss the point. What is the point? That we have a good creator and we have a relationship with this creator and what he has made is good. And that, in, not just good, the word isn't just like good. It, it, the idea is the word, it's, it's good for human life. He has established this creation in a way that is made for humans to flourish. So, as you're enjoying this creation, don't worship it. Because they were. Worshipping mountains, worshipping stars, worshipping sun, worshipping trees. No, don't worship it. Worship the creator and then be thankful for, I mean, so that'd be one way to approach it. And like, what a waste of time then to go try to make science books proving that the world's 6,000 years old. Like, adventures in missing the point. Genesis 2 and 3. How does, how does evil come to be? That's what Genesis 2 and 3 is about. It's a myth. It's true. So you, th this is a hard thing to get in your head. Myths are deeply true. 
But when you have a man named man and a woman named life and a talking serpent and two trees called life and knowledge of good and evil, and you're like, could you get the hint there might be some symbolism going on here without freaking out going, but if Adam's not real, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's like, of course he did. <laughs> but this is the... the what, what if you're so busy trying to prove that Adam and Eve were literal proto-humans like just, you know, a few centuries back or millennia back that, that you forget the idea that it's about you. You're Adam. You're Eve. What are the serpentine thoughts going through your head that cause you to turn away from the goodness and strive Instead of opening yourself up to the tree of life, we turn and we, 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 we want to do things our way. Well, that's, us, that's me. Who cares if they were apes? <laughs> no, I mean, it's people, and maybe it is the original people. But, like, don't miss the more than literal point. If you want to believe that that's a literal couple, that's really okay. But don't miss the point of how evil comes to be in your own heart. So that's, that's a genre. Myth is a very, it's, it, 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 it was an easy genre in the past because people were storytellers. But for us, we got all sciencey about it. That's the problem. So, um, so that's another genre. So we've got a lot of these genres going on in the Bible, but like all of them, I think, all of them contain this trajectory of we encounter God we tell the stories of our encounters. We pass them on, distill them, and ultimately someone writes them down. I'll also add like an odd strange thing is that sometimes they're not written by who we thought they're written by um, or when we thought they were written, and that's okay. We don't really know. It's probably arrogance to get dogmatic about it anyway. But there's weird things about like how differently the people of God saw God even in those days. So parts of the Old Testament, you're going to see God as a very, like a tribal warrior um, who wants to make Israel prosper and destroy all the other nations. I mean, you really have that in there. And that's a reflection of the authors and the genre and the, the, and the day, the era they're in experiences they're having. Of course you'd feel like if that if Babylon is tormenting you and enslaving you. You're wanting to say, no, God hasn't forgotten us. God loves us. He's going to overcome this. So you're going to write that way as you encounter the goodness of God. But also you've got parts of the Old Testament where it's like, oh no, he loves everyone and all the nations are going to come and they're all going to bring offerings and we're all going to worship together. It's going to be amazing. And, and there's going to be the, a global, the glory of God's going to cross the whole world. It's, that's, that's Old Testament. But that's quite a different view of God. Then. Also, earlier in the Old Testament, you've got like different visions of, of what God is. So it's almost like, I think the most ancient one is like, maybe they saw God as a whole council. And then, and, then, and then Yahweh is one of the council. And then maybe they thought, okay, well, no, Yahweh is the one true God, but there's all these other gods too. Yahweh is just the best one. And then eventually, like, no, actually, there's no other ones. Yahweh is the only one. Well, this development's happening right in the Bible. You can watch them think about it. Another version of this is God's relationship to wrath in the Bible. So early, an ancient worldview is when you sin, God is mad and he destroys you. But another version in the Bible is when you sin, God is mad, but he doesn't want to get blood on his hands because that's not holy. So he sends the destroyer to destroy you. So Satan is God's hitman. Like, really, he sends. And then, but then as you go, it's like, wait a minute. No, when you sin, the destroyer comes to destroy you, but God comes to save you from the destroyer. And that's all in there. It's amazing. Well, of course it's amazing. Thousands of years of this development. Like, who is God? What is he like? When we encountered him, what did we infer? Let's tell our kids. Okay, now, and then we'll write it down at some point. And then um, they're not getting all of their revelation even from, from God. Uh, 
uh, directly or God's teaching them in ver a variety of ways. So one really interesting thing is um, when Israel is in Babylon, they, they, some of the Israelites end up importing Babylonian mythologies into Judaism. And some of those aren't very good and some of them are essential. That's a weird thing. So for example, uh, the Babylonians and the Zoroastrians had this whole thing of, of hell and the underworld and, and, and a bunch of Satans and, and a whole bunch of like lots of gods and demonic stuff and all that, that, that the Jews hadn't believed in before, the, before Babylon. And the Sadducees, they didn't accept that stuff. They were conservatives who only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if it's not in there, we don't believe it. So they were very hesitant then about some of these mythologies coming in from Babylon. But the Pharisees were more open. And they brought back theologies of hell, theologies of Satan, theologies. And they, so they build all of this stuff and they're importing it. And you would think that's a bad thing, but guess what else is included in that? Resurrection. And, and um, so it feels like maybe God revealed the truth of the resurrection to the Jews through the Babylonians. You're like, what? Is that real? Well, that's how they started taking it. So, um, so that's a bit about Old Testament development. Then we get, and it's the same thing with the New Testament. So here's how I see it. Not everyone agrees on this, but I, I'm a conservative on this thing. So my belief is that it's, it happened the same way. The New Testament didn't drop out of the sky in an egg. The New Testament starts as real people encountering God in Christ, right? His disciples, they encounter God in Christ. They experience that God is good, that God is love, that God is compassionate and forgiving. And, um, and they, they meet Jesus, really. Then for like decades, probably 30 years minimum, nothing's written down about it that we have. It's told through the churches. It's spread through the apostles. And you can go ask the apostles and they will tell you. And in fact, you couldn't just go be an evangelist. If you wanted to go share the gospel, you had to go to the apostles and get your gospel approved so that you weren't just making shit up. Remember that? Okay. So, so, so even Paul and Barnabas, they go off to to Peter, James, and John, and to have their gospel approved. And Peter, James, and John are in Jerusalem. They're like, okay, check, 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 check. Yep, you've got it all. Oh, wait, don't forget the poor. Interesting. And then Paul's like, oh, the very thing I hoped they'd say. And then they go off, right? So you've got good quality control. I think that's why Jesus, one of the main reasons Jesus chose 12 disciples was to have 12 eyewitnesses who were there from the beginning, who learned their gospel from Jesus, who practiced sharing that gospel when they went out two by two. And you've got a real quality control then about what is preached. Then they are appointing bishops and elders or presbyters church to church. They're appointing them. Why are they appointing them? Quality control. They're like, we want to make sure that, that these churches are sharing the gospel that we received from Jesus through the apostles. So then people like um, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll say, this is the gospel we received. We don't make it up. We received it. What is it? That Christ came, that Christ died, that Christ rose again, and now Jesus is Lord. And... Um, uh, Hebrews says the same thing. It's, they received it. So th this is all happening while the apostles are still alive, but then they start dying. What do you do? They want to make sure that they have an authorized eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of the gospel, right? So you get these four gospel books that are developed while they're still alive or shortly thereafter. So Matthew, I, do, I really do think Matthew writes Matthew. Um, Mark is a disciple of Peter who writes the gospel of Mark through Peter's point of view. 
Um, we've got Luke, who seems to be a Gentile convert, but he, he goes and he asks different eyewitnesses. He says, I, I, he tells you how he wrote it. I went and asked a whole bunch of people. And based on some of the stories about Mary, where only Mary could know it, Mary is one of his eyewitnesses. So I'm always watching for Mary's voice through Luke. That's a fun one. But he asked a lot of people. And then um, John, if John wrote John, if John didn't write John, a disciple of his did. But you're definitely getting John's point of view in the Gospel of John three, 30 years after the other books are done. I think that's magnificent. Here's why. In the first three Gospels, it's mostly Jesus' Galilean ministry. And if you only had those three Gospels, we would think that Jesus' ministry is only like about 14 months long. Now, John's got another 30 years. These other guys are dying off, and, and some, of the, some of the church are going, you should write a Gospel too. Is there anything like important you'd want us to know? And, um, and he's praying about it, and he's like, oh my goodness. Nobody mentioned Nicodemus. Oh my goodness. Nobody mentioned the woman at the well. Oh wait, and then there was the whole woman caught in adultery. And the foot washing. And the wedding at Cana. And like on and on and on. And you're like, all these stories other guys didn't tell. He's like, I better, I should include those. Aren't you glad he did? And when Mary Magdalene meets Jesus just after the resurrection in the garden, it's this intensely intimate moment that we wouldn't know about except that there's four Gospels, not three. Peter, having denied Jesus three times, now has a chance to be reinstated on the beach in Galilee. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We wouldn't know that without John. So I'm so glad John, like, who had another generation to think about the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He writes and he tells us stuff that we, we wouldn't have seen it. And in fact, for him, it's not the whole Galilean ministry. Um, mostly it's the Judean conflict. And half of the Gospel of John is written, uh, is about the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Half the Gospel. And in fact, chapter... 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Five chapters are at the Last Supper. Five chapters. And not only that, that whole five chapters, they never mention the Passover. It's like kind of weird. Um, but it, it's a foot, foot washing. So anyway, you develop this. So again, you've got people of God encounter God. They develop communities, pass on the, the, the story. Then they begin to write it down. And... Um, and a lot of these writings, all the way through the whole Bible, it's not just history. It's reflection. It's prayerful, prophetic, theological reflection through you real humans with biased worldviews. And that comes through too because God isn't embarrassed about our story or our point of view. He lets his children tell the story to dignify us. And to say, this isn't just a story of God. This is a story of the people. Angry people, sad people, lamenting people, victorious people. Semi-pagan people, barely more than barbarian people. Meeting God and having breakthroughs. And having weird wrong ideas, but having breakthroughs. I love David so much because he's virtually like Conan the Barbarian. He really is. Think about Conan, for those of you ever, you know. If you're God, if you're God and you say, I, I'm going to like get in Conan's head. And by the time I'm done with this guy, he's going to say this about me. He won't say God is just the warrior tribal God who kills all his energy. He's going to say things like the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. And you're like, oh my goodness, Conan's saying this? That's a breakthrough. That's like a huge, so to me, I would, I would regard that as inspired. And so the Bible does say about itself, 
that the scriptures are inspired. That means that God has breathed through these books. Doesn't mean he dictated every word. It means that the people of God encountered God, reflected on that encounter, wrote it down from their point of view, and then God breathes through it for a purpose, which we'll get to. Anything else about that? So, um, inspired was an important word to us, and I think it's okay. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is inspired by God. He's breathed through it with the good news pointing to Jesus. Um, and it's profitable for training, correction. I've lost the order of that. Memorized it when I was a kid. Instruction. The man of, that the man of righteousness may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for good works. And so, so it's about training. It's about training us to be Christ-like. Um, then we came up with the word infallible. Well, so I looked that up in the early church fathers, and, and sure enough, they used the word infallible, but they never use it about the Bible. The Holy Spirit's infallible. The Holy Spirit's infallible only. You wouldn't say that a book that involves the cooperation of human beings is infallible. Only the Holy Spirit's infallible. And then inerrancy was just a made-up word in the 1800s or so. So it's not anywhere in that. That's old stuff. Um, but there's, there, is like, there's, there's, there is a testimony about, about what Scripture is, that it's this inspired thing. But now I want to get to the climax of that. What's it for? So when I... I'll tell you a story. So I got an invitation to a church on Vancouver Island, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. It's a Baptist church. The pastor liked me, is welcoming me, welcoming me, and he had his whole, his whole board was on, on board. But then before I got there, uh, he left, and a new pastor came in. And he said, I see you're on our schedule to be here, but I have a real question about your doctrinal statement. I'm like, what's your question about my doctrinal statement? It's like, he said, the Bi it doesn't mention the Bible. I'm like, well, you know, it's the Nicene Creed. <laughs> it's the Apostles' Creed. These are, these are our doctrinal statements. We, we don't feel it's appropriate to try to improve on them because these, the, these are the creeds of the ancient church. He's like, no, no, it has to have the Bible in it. And so I'm like, well, like, what's yours? And it's like, he had made it up. So, so, you, so I got disinvited because the Nicene Creed was inferior to his made-up doctrinal statement. Why? Because, the, because I didn't have a statement about the Bible. And, and, and so that's a long time ago, 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And then I was thinking about that story lately. I'm like, that's not true. It does, we do have a, a statement about the Bible. Here's what the Nicene Creed says. That we believe... Where do I start? I'm working through it. So there's, a, I'll just say it. So we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heavens and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, um, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light from light, true God of true gods, of one essence with the Father by whom all things are made, who for us men and for our salvation uh, was in, incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. He was crucified for us also under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried, and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. There it is. According to the scriptures. What are the scriptures? Who cares? Well, I care. They're a testimony that Jesus Christ died, came, became incarnate, died, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what they're for. They're a testimony to this one. They point to the word of God. It's through the scriptures that we know he died, came, died, and rose again. So I'm like, that's super important. That alone is a good reason to not leave your Bible on the shelf because... Although you can have encounters with the living God and develop a community that passes on those encounters, the actual story came to us through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But now here's the wild thing. The Nicene Creed didn't make that up. 
they got it from Paul. Let me read you this. Now we turn in our Bibles. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Now, brothers, I apprise you of the good tidings, gospel, I proclaim to you, and which you received, and in which you now stand, through which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word of these, those good tidings I proclaim to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For among the very first things I delivered to you, what I also received, that the anointed, or Messiah, died because of our sins in accord with the scriptures. And that he was entombed and he was raised on the third day in accord with the scriptures. That he was seen by Cephas, then the twelve, etc. So that's an interesting passage because Paul's saying, our, the gospel we received is that Jesus came died and rose again according to the scriptures. Except wait, there's no New Testament yet. So what, what's that about? What is that about? I think what it's about is they had scriptures and it was their Hebrew scriptures and after they encountered the living Christ, they saw him everywhere in their scriptures, and so this is what Jesus teaches them on the road to Emmaus. Beginning with the law and the prophets, he showed them how he was, they were everywhere pointing to him. That's his takeaway. So, so getting bogged down in what is the Bible, even though I've done that for the last hour, again is an adventure in missing the point. The scriptures, should, they appear in the gospel as the testimony pointing to Jesus from all time in strange ways, too. And, and, and so they would, use, they would use allegory. They would read the Old Testament and say, where is Jesus in the wilderness? And they would see him. Oh, and it became more clear to them, especially to Peter, James, and John, when they met Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration... And who's with him? Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. The living and the dead. The, and they're standing there and Peter's like, oh good. Now we've got the big three. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And the father's like, ahem? It's not the big three. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it's... It, it, the, the function of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, was always to point towards the glory of Jesus. That helps them then, the apostles then see, oh, I see, Gee, the glory of God revealed in Jesus. That's what came down on Trans Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Horeb, no, Tabor. But also, that was Jesus on Mount Sinai. That was Jesus in the pillar of cloud and fire. That was Jesus in the... In the burning bush. That was Jesus in the fiery furnace. That was the resurrection every time David said, you will not abandon my soul to death. There it was. Suddenly, all of D David has all these psalms where he's like, please God, don't abandon my soul to death and God saves his life from Saul. The apostles take that and they go, this is about Jesus that he's going to rise from the dead. Really? You can read it this way? And they're like, you must read it this way. And if you don't, you will be so busy reading some literal lessons that you won't see it pointing to Jesus. And the veil won't be removed, and you're going to read it like somebody who's blind. And he said, if, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, if you read it like that, you know what? The whole book is just condemnation. But if you have the veil removed and you turn it and you see it, you look for Jesus in there. It's, it's the glory of God is revealed in Jesus. All right, I'll, say, I'll do one more little batch and then we'll do Q&A. Sorry for those who fell out the window and died already. Like, it happened to Paul. I'm not as good at resurrections as him. Um, so... A lot of you guys, a lot of you have come to the conclusion that God is only good. Most of you? Yeah? You think, Mike? 
Are they getting that? Yeah, yeah. The God is. Well, this even happened before the New Testament. What happened? What, I'll, I'll go back in time. This is a fun history lesson. Sometimes history is fun. I'm gonna go over to gonna go over to Greece for a moment, and they're talking about you know these books like Homer's Iliad or Homer's Odyssey with all these nasty gods that are fickle and manipulators and connivers and liars and they're siding with you one moment and they turn on you the next and they set you up to be killed and all this stuff and Plato's seeing how they're using this. This literature in children's education. He's like, why are we teaching them this? God's not like that. If there is a God, he's good and he's only good. And that goodness is expressed as beauty, truth, and justice. And then I may have shared this here before that, that he says, uh, someday, you know, if that goodness, beauty, truth, and justice were revealed in the world, it would come as a perfectly righteous man. And when that perfectly righteous man comes, we will arrest him, beat him, and crucify him. Crucify him. He says this over 300 years. You all right there? That was like, shut up, preacher. It's pleasant, whatever it is. Quentin, yeah, that's Quentin. All right. I forgive you. It's all right. <laughs> Still righteous. It was lovely, wasn't it? I, I felt like it was prophetic. Um, so, so there you go. So, so that was a prophetic word. Over 300 years before Christ, God is declared as good only through beauty, truth, and justice, manifest in a perfectly righteous man who will be crucified. Plato's Republic. Okay, what happens is, so that's Greek. So what happens is this stuff gets popularized across the whole Greek empire, Roman empire then, and down into Alexandria, Egypt, where Philo the Jew is this amazing rabbi. He's alive just as Jesus is growing up. Philo dies around the time Jesus is growing up. Philo reads Plato's stuff and he goes, this could help us. Because when I read the Old Testament, sometimes I feel like Plato. And I feel like this story of genocide is not worthy of a God who is only good. This story of Elijah uh, calling down fire from heaven, Elijah, Elijah, and, and like killing these, these uh, troops, 50 men, and then another 50 men. It's, it's just not worthy of God. God is only good. So the Jews are already thinking this stuff. And so what Philo does is he says, I want, here's what I want you to do. If, if you're a Jewish rabbi, before you open the scrolls, you have to have, you have to have a pre-commitment to the goodness of God. You have to believe that God is good and only good, manifest as beauty, truth, and justice in the world. And that that would be expressed in righteousness among people. That, that's what we need to teach. Because we don't want to do to the, our kids what the Homer, Homeric gods, or what? Yahweh's just like you Zeus? So he already got this, right? So that becomes a popular thing. And then what he would do is he would open the scrolls and he would, he would see these stories and he'd go, oh, not worthy of God. What do you do? He would say, you don't throw it out. You read it as allegory. When you read, so he would say, so, so God kills all the Philistines. Oh, but the root word of Philistine is pride. So this is about the destruction of pride in our hearts. That's what he would do. Well, when you read how Paul interprets the Old Testament, he almost always interprets it that way. He almost never takes it literally. When he does take it literally, he uses it to kill Christians. When he comes to Christ, he begins to see Jesus everywhere in it. And, and he, he sees it not only to be read as allegory, but he even believes some of it was written as allegory, pointing towards the Messiah, the righteous one, the good one. So... Um, um, then you get to about 
Then you get to Paul, and, he, and so he's got this thing. It's like, okay, we want to read the Bible the way Jesus taught us to in the road to Emmaus, looking for Jesus there, the goodness of God. It's pointing to him. Oh, and, 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 the, and but also to be trained to be more Christ-like. So now we're looking for two things. How does it point to Jesus, and how does it help me be more Christ-like? And then you get to about 200. Now I'm winding down. You get to 200, and there's a guy named Origen, and Origen's this ma major church father, and he is from Alexandria where Philo was. And he says the same thing. He says, before you open your Bibles, have a pre-commitment that God is not only completely good and only good, but that he's absolutely Christ-like. Now open your Bible. They open the Bible, and you go to a passage, it's like, God's not being Christ-like there. How do we read that? You can't read it literally. In fact, him and then all of the church fathers in the 200s and 300s, they would say this. If you read a text in the Bible about God that is unchristlike, and you take it literally, you create an idol and you commit a monstrous blasphemy. So nowadays, we, what we inherited, what we inherited was to be faithful is to read it literally. In the 300s, St. John Cassie, it says, to read it literally when it's unchristlike is a monstrous blasphemy and it's an idol. And then he adds this and he says, and those who read it and, and, and that they see uh, God's wrath there literally and it terrifies you, he says, that is not a revelation of God. It's a revelation of your own fears and your filters. This is like the 300s. And I'm like, this is so genius. And so Origen will say, now we're going to teach you how to write, read the Bible. A, before you read the Bible, God is good, absolutely Christ-like, going to train you how to be Christ-like. Open the Bible. The first layer is literal. It's like your body, body, soul, and spirit. First layer is literal like your body, and that means find the best texts that you can and figure out what genre it is and read it that way. That's literal. That's the real literal. Come again, soul, this is how to become more Christ-like. Look in your Bible. Where does it teach you how to become more uh, like what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in your life? Is it about religious striving or is it about Christ in you, transforming you from glory to glory through grace? Then you come a third time, the Spirit, body, soul, spirit, and the, he, so it was literal sense, moral sense, and we call this the spiritual sense. How is this about Jesus? So we made that a policy in our church. You don't get to preach from the Bible without saying how this is about Jesus. You don't get to preach on leadership themes from the life of Moses. No, if, it's how does Moses point to Jesus? And, and you're allowed to be creative, I'll give you one extreme example that you'll never exceed, so it's good. Um, you'll, you'll see how much freedom you have with this. So there's the story in the Bible about where Moses strikes the rock and the water comes out. Okay. There's a Jewish legend about that. So it's not even in the Bible. that The Jewish legend is that that rock followed them around in the wilderness. It would like roll behind them wherever they went. When they camped, the stone would roll into camp and it would stop. Then the priests would gather around the stone that had followed them and they would sing, spring up a well and the water would start. It was a portable well. This was a Jewish legend based on that story. Crazy. Well, yes, you have. I'm going to tell you. First Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I did not intend, this is Paul, right? Creative license. I did not intend you to be ignorant, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's already allegorizing. This was their baptism. They were baptized too, in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of this, and he's saying the same as us. When they ate the manna, they were eating Jesus. It was communion. 
When they went through the sea, they got baptized. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was the Messiah. What? How do you read the Bible like that? It's like, learn. Because if you think that's bad, <laughs> try literalism. And so this is what he's doing. He's actually training us how to look for Jesus everywhere. What is Mo when Moses holds up his arms and the two guys are holding his arms up? When Aaron's rod starts budding, what is that? Resurrection. What, and just over and over. Now you could see why, like, Jesus' disciples, they, they're like, our hearts were burning when he was going through the Bible. According to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. That's what's important. Yeah.